This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 151, Anarchy. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Anarchy is society without government. If you're not a big fan of government, and I'm not, that can sound pretty good. And in a perfect world, it would be. But in case you didn't know, this isn't a perfect world. This week, we will discuss what it means to be under law to Christ, how conspiracy theories feed into our worst tendencies, whether political protests are part of the solution or part of the problem, and yet another reason not to play Monopoly. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those that are without law. That's part of a larger context, obviously. I want to focus on this phrase, though, that he uses in the middle of this reading, under the law of Christ. What exactly is the law of Christ, and how are we under it, and how does it conform to all the rest of these teachings that Paul gives us and other gospel writers as well, they clearly indicate that we are not under law, that we are under grace. I don't know anyone who would try to argue, from the text at least, that God doesn't care what you do, that there is no obligation whatsoever to be placed upon mankind. I know that we've been sold a bill of goods with regard to faith only or grace only or whatever kind of label you want to put on a particular doctrine. But literally, I don't know anyone who would try to argue from the Bible that God is going to accept you no matter what you do or do not do. Even if you believe that all you have to do to be saved is to name the name of Jesus in some fashion, pray the prayer or whatever, that's still something that you need to do. That is still an obligation that left untouched leaves you unsaved. The love of God is demonstrated that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not grievous. First John 5 verse 3, I could go on and on and on. Clearly, the idea of law is compatible with our walk with Christ. In fact, it's at the absolute core of our walk with Christ. I'll refer you to James chapter 1 and verse number 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I realize and I understand how it may seem like law and liberty are at loggerheads with one another. But the fact of the matter is, we as Americans should understand that better than anybody. We live in a free country, a country that cherishes liberty, that preaches liberty, that practices liberty, and yet we have laws. Those laws protect our liberty. It should not be a strange thing for us to contemplate the idea of having to obey laws given to us by God, given to us by Jesus, preserved in the scriptures, and yet consider ourselves free people. We can have liberty and we can have law at the same time. In fact, there's no other reasonable way of looking at the gospel than that we have to have both. I refer you to Romans chapter 8, verse 2, for instance. Paul writes, therefore, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. This law is given to us in the context of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Are we supposed to believe that this law doesn't have any laws, that this law doesn't have any requirements? Galatians chapter 2, another passage, verse number 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Well, there's liberty in Christ Jesus, but not liberty to do whatever we want to do, not liberty to say whatever we want to say. 
in Jesus, we are freed from other people's consciences. We do not find ourselves condemned because we do not measure up to somebody else's standards. doesn't mean Jesus doesn't have a standard because he does, and we measure up to it as best we can. But other people do not have the right to bind their consciences on me, nor I on them. There's another example in 1 Peter 2, verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. There's a difference between being free from sin and free to sin. Peter says here, you're not free to sin. You're not free to do whatever you want to do. You need to be submitting to God. You need to be submitting to the gospel. Use it as bond slaves of God, he says here. We are obligated to do as God has told us to do. The words of John 8, 31 and 32 are very important on this subject. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, if, that is, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you submit yourself to the word of Jesus Christ, if you submit yourself to his gospel, if you commit yourself to living in his way, not believing that perfection was absolutely necessary, but striving for perfection, determined to do what God has told you to do. And what would it say about us if we didn't want to do that, by the way? If we pursue God's things, he says, you're going to find the truth. You're going to find his instructions for how you are to live your life, how you are to serve him in this life, how you are to pursue the next life, that truth is going to make us free. The soul that sins is not going to die anymore. The soul that sins is going to live. Jesus Christ is going to give us life because he has died for us. And because of his death, we can be free to live a life of service and confidence and humility and ultimately a life, of course, in heavenly glory with him for all of eternity. This is what I've been reading. I'd mentioned last week that I had read The 39 Steps by John Buchan. Great book. My copy of The 39 Steps came in a single volume with another one of John Buchan's books, The Powerhouse, which is not especially a great book, but a decent book. And considering I got it for free after having bought The 39 Steps, it's well worth the money. It's another spy novel. It's another story about one lone individual striving against the system, and uh, the good guys win in the end. Sorry, spoiler alert. In this particular case, the powerhouse refers to an organization of anarchists, which itself seems kind of contradictory. If people are genuinely interested in anarchy, if they don't want any organization at all, then why are they binding together to form an organization of anarchists? But anyway... The story goes that this individual, the protagonist, he accidentally stumbles into this web of conspiracy. All of the truly intelligent, truly innovative people in the world are anarchists, as it turns out, and they have been conspiring with one another over a period of time, deciding that they are tired of thinking and inventing and creating things just to turn them over to governments and private industries and such where they're going to do horrible things and run wars and fatten the pockets of the fat cats, etc. They're going to do this on their own. They're just going to team up together and take over the world, essentially. It's another example of what we would call in the modern day a conspiracy theory. We love a good conspiracy theory, don't we? Whether it is the Trilateral Commission or whether it is the United Nations or that weird fraternity that George Bush was part of at Yale – we love the idea that there is this organization, this system behind the scenes pulling all the strings, that there is 
unimaginable power behind the scenes that doesn't answer to anybody. If you're a Republican, it's George Soros. If you are a Democrat, it's the Koch brothers or whatever. Believing in conspiracies is a weird mix of exercising control over the world and leaning on our complete lack of control. It's a control in the sense that we get it. We have knowledge. We have wisdom as to how the whole system works. But that system, of course, is completely beyond our control. I used to be more into conspiracy theories than I am now. Now I find it a rather depressing way to live your life. I don't know if they're true or not. I'm not suggesting that there is not a global conspiracy running things behind the scenes. I don't know. I'm not in a position to know. But the more time I spend concerned about things beyond my control, the less energy I have left over to pursue the things of Jesus Christ. I think it's far more important for us to spend our lives here on earth seeking a purpose for what we do in this life rather than seeking some kind of grand understanding of things. You may get 18 doctoral degrees in your life. You may write a thousand books. You may be the smartest person in the world, but that doesn't mean your life is pointing in the right direction. I would much rather look at the world very simply with a complete and total grasp of what I'm supposed to do in it, regardless of what is going on out there, knowing that I am in the place where I need to be myself. It can be intimidating to think about the enemy being larger than life, as it were. But don't use that as an excuse for failure. The bad guy is just too big. The enemy is just too big. We can't possibly succeed. That's depressing. That may even motivate us to give up, to quit on our spiritual warfare, as it were. But if you seek a purpose instead, if you try to find the right way to live your life in whatever system you find it in, whoever is pulling the strings or not pulling the strings, that's where you're going to draw closer to God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Spiritual forces, the devil and his minions, are warring against us. If that seems intimidating, it's supposed to seem intimidating. The devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, the text says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. But the text also says in verse 9, we're supposed to resist him. And Paul tells us how we go about doing that. In the very next verse here in Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And he goes on to talk more specifically about salvation, and about righteousness, and truth, and the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God that's given to us as an offensive weapon. We can and we must engage in this enemy, not being discouraged or cowed into weakness, into indifference because of his power, but activated, energized, knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. First John 4 verse 4 tells us, we have the power of Jesus Christ within us. And even if it looks like we are not tearing down spiritual strongholds in the short term, we have confidence that Jesus will tear down every spiritual stronghold in due course of time. The enemy is going to fall one of these days. Yes, the devil is too big for us to fight. He's too big for us to beat, but he's not too big for Jesus. This is what I've been hearing. I have been wildly vacillating over the last couple years or so between absolutely determining to find a way to talk about political matters in this space and 
deciding that I am absolutely not going to talk about political matters in this space. And the not talking about it has more or less won the day to this point. I don't really intend on breaking that rule today, but I do want to stick my toe a little bit into political waters and talk about the attitude that we oftentimes take with regard to government when it fails. We live in a nation where political protest is allowed and to a certain degree even encouraged. If someone decides to take up a particular cause and go march and go yell and make signs and all that kind of thing, far be it for me to tell you not to. But I think we would all agree that political protest has gone too far in certain situations. The Bible teaches us in, for instance, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and following, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid." For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an adventurer who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, some people will read that and say, yeah, if only. Have you looked at our government? Have you looked at the people who are running our government? Well, yes, I have. And I am, generally speaking, disappointed with virtually all of them, if not all of them. And I have been for basically as long as I've been watching government. I hasten to add here. Paul is writing in the context of a Roman dictatorship, a dictatorship that eventually will kill him as well as many other Christians in the first century. And even so, we're told to submit. Clearly, Paul does not mean here submit to authority when authority does what you want it to do. That wouldn't make any sense at all. That's basically anarchy. Yes, government is God's tool for justice, but God's tools don't always work. That may seem a little bit strange until you realize that God is putting his tools into the hands of human beings. And although God is perfect and God's plans are perfect, God's instruments are by no means perfect. When we are placed in charge of implementing a plan of God, it can be reasonably assumed that things are going to go less than ideally. And in fact, things may be a colossal mess. That doesn't mean God's not in charge. That doesn't mean God's plan isn't in effect. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to submit to God's plan. Think about evangelism along the same lines. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16 tell us to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. Well, we tried that, and it didn't work. People weren't interested. Well, is it because Jesus was wrong? Is it because the gospel is ineffectual? Or is it because we have human beings implementing a plan with regard to other individual human beings hopefully accepting this plan? We are his tools for evangelism in the same way that government is his tool for justice. The plan doesn't always work. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. So what we need to do as individuals with regard to evangelism is do the best we can. Implement God's plan as best we possibly can. And then if it fails, which is to say if it fails to convert people... It's not God's fault, nor is it our fault. It's the fault of those who chose not to accept it. And the same thing goes for government. If government is not working, maybe we have a bad government, or maybe we have people who are functioning poorly within the constraints of that government. In any case, it doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't say what it says. We don't throw out God's plan 
simply because of human failure. Another passage along these same lines in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. There is no room for deliberately thumbing your nose at government and trusting that we're serving Jesus in so doing. We serve Jesus by being the best citizens we possibly can be. And this is a challenge for me because sometimes government does things that are hateful to me, that are hateful to Jesus as far as that goes, hateful to the will of God, the God who put government in power in the first place. We're not happy about that. We don't rejoice in that. And in a government like ours, in a system like ours, where we have some limited control over the government, we can do what we can to alter the government. That's a blessing given to us by God. We absolutely ought to take advantage of that. But ultimately, this is not about finding a system that works and us glorifying God in that system. This is about glorifying God wherever we happen to be, with whatever government, with whatever system happens to be given to us. Now, you can count yourself blessed if you like. I certainly do. That we are born into a society where it is so convenient and has been traditionally for us to do the things of God. But if that ceases to be the case, that doesn't mean we quit on God. That doesn't mean we quit on God's things. We need to emphasize passages like Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Government killed Jesus. Local government and international government killed Jesus. He submitted to that, and God was glorified in that. The same thing can and will be true for us. As we submit to the author and perfecter of faith, he is going to not only lead us into this wonderful, nurturing relationship with him, he's also going to lead us through the trials and tribulations that come with living in an imperfect world and take us to a world that is absolutely perfect. That's what it means to submit to the King of Kings. This is what I've been playing. I've played Monopoly probably a hundred times or more in my life. I haven't played it a single time in the last maybe 30 years, maybe longer than that. And if I have my way, I'll never play it again. A couple of reasons for that. One, Monopoly is just not a very good game. Sorry for all the Monopoly fans out there. Monopoly was invented in... 1933, I think it was, almost 100 years ago, the game that Monopoly was based on slash ripped off from was invented in 1902. As it happens, over the last 100 years, we've learned some things about designing board games. We've gotten better at it, and the games that are being produced now are far more interesting, far more attractive, far more engaging, far more fair than games that were invented in my great-grandparents' era. But secondly, Monopoly annoys me because it brings out the worst in people. And I don't mean the meanness and and bad spirit and such, although there's a case to be made for that. No, I mean this attitude that we know more than the designer knows. House rules are probably enacted more for Monopoly than for any other board game that's ever been invented. For instance, do you know what happens when you land on the free parking space in Monopoly? Absolutely nothing. It is a dead space on the board. You say, well, when when we play Monopoly, 
we always use free parking as a kind of a windfall space. Everybody who's paying taxes or paying fees or whatever puts the money in the middle of the board. And and when the person lands on free parking, he gets the, the big windfall. Then, yeah, that's the way I grew up playing it too. But that's not in the game. And what it winds up doing is putting more money into the game than is supposed to be there. What's the number one complaint about Monopoly after all? Game lasts way, way, way too long. Well, this is one of the reasons why. We keep players artificially into the game by giving them money for no particular reason, and the game lasts and lasts and lasts. It wasn't designed to go that way. I'll give you another example. There are 32 houses in the game of Monopoly, 32 and only 32. That's a finite number. The game is called Monopoly, after all, for a reason. If you are playing a game where a lot of people are developing property, you may run out of houses. And in my house, what happened was you went to get pennies or paper clips or Fritos or whatever it happened to be to sub for houses. Or you just basically guilt trip your neighbor into converting his houses into hotels. In reality, you're only supposed to have 32 houses. And so if you want to make people really, really annoyed then get full-color groups as quick as you can, especially in the orange and red groups, by the way, because they get landed on more often than anybody else. That's a mathematical fact. It's been proven. Develop those. Put four houses on each one of those properties. Four times six is 24. So two-thirds of the houses are gone. Nobody can buy them. And don't improve them. Just leave them there. People hate that. And so we house rule it away. But again, if you allow for extra houses to be built, you artificially lengthen the game. The experts tend to know the game more than the amateurs. And when we get together for Monopoly parties, everybody has different house rules. Well, we play it like this. Well, we play it like this. Well, we play it like this. Are you or are you not allowed to collect rent when you're in jail? Answer, by the way, according to the rules, yes, you are. Jail is, in fact, the best place to be in the game. Stay in jail as long as you possibly can. That way you don't land on anybody else's property. You just collect rent all day. That's one of the many ways in which Monopoly kind of sows seeds of discord among brethren. That's anarchy for you. You cannot have a society when you do not have a common set of rules. The reason that the game designers put rules in the box is so that everybody can know the rules, everybody can know the rules the same way, and that there is an objective source to go to if there's some kind of dispute. God works that way too. When God tells us how to play the game of life, if you will, he gives us a rule book and he expects us to read it and to abide by it and to not challenge it. The bottom line is we're not qualified to do that. We're not qualified to weigh in on how we can make this game better. And what's more, as is the case with Monopoly, when we do tweak the rules, when we do change things up because we feel like it would work better this way or that way, we wound up making the game worse. God knows what he's doing. And what we need to do, if we are going to be right in his sight, if we are going to perform under his auspices in a proper way, if we're going to be found faithful in the end, we need to read his book and we need to do what he's told us to do. And we need to give up this notion that we might have some better idea. Any number of passages would be appropriate in this context. I'm going to refer you to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the unity. This is the peace. This is the harmony that we hope and pray to have as the people of God. And God says, this is the way you get it. This is the only unity that matters, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. If we can have that, then we can dwell with one another in patience and gentleness and love. But it has to be done in his way. We can't house rule this. We can't decide, well, I think if we talked about doctrine less often, we'd get along better. Well, we may or may not get along better that way. But the only unity that matters is the unity that God has promised us, because this is the unity not only with one another, but also with him. The fellowship that we have through the word, through the inspired word that John talks about in 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3, this is fellowship not just with one another, but also fellowship with the apostles and with God in heaven and with Jesus Christ himself. Doing things our own way, acting like anarchists, this is not going to get us anywhere. It's going to create friction. It's going to create division among those who are claiming to follow after him. It cannot possibly do anything else. We need to give up on these dreams of running the show, of being kings in our own right, and submit to the king who has already given to us, that is Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.